Amen. Well, as uh, you might have guessed, yes, we are in Colossians chapter 2 tonight. And so I would have you, if you haven't found it already, be finding that in your Bibles. And when you do, we can stand for the reading of God's Word tonight. Colossians chapter 2. If you found it, say amen. amen. All right. That makes all of us, I think. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 will be our initial reading. We're not going to go through the whole chapter tonight. The end of the, the, the furthest it will go tonight will be verse 10. But our initial reading will be verses 1 through 6. And this is what it says. For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words." For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Verse 6, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now really the, uh, the main part of this message will uh, be kind of emphasized around the thought here in this sixth verse. I'm going to read it again. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And the title of the message tonight is Don't Make Things Complicated. Don't Make Things Complicated. You may be seated. Now, as, uh, as I've spoken before, Paul was not the founder of the church in Colossae. Um, verse 1 of this chapter actually makes it very clear that he had never even been there. Uh, but the church was actually uh, apparently started by a man named Epaphras, who is important in this letter. And after he heard Paul preach the gospel in Ephesus uh, a few years before the writing of this letter, Epaphras apparently was saved and returned to Colossae, and then a church was formed and founded there in Colossae. Now, at the point of this letter, which is sometime around 60 to 62 AD, Paul is in jail in Rome. And uh, Epaphras has come 1,300 miles from Colossae all the way to Rome. What a trip. They didn't have planes and cars back then, so that must have been a very treacherous journey for him to make. And uh, I want you to know this, that Epaphras loved the church in Colossae. He loved this church. The Bible calls him uh, a faithful servant. Um, and uh, as well, not only the, the believers in Colossae, but also in Laodicea and Hierapolis. These were uh, three cities that were in the Lycus Valley. They were within 10 to 15 miles of each other. Listen to what uh, Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says about Epaphras. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you, meaning he's a Colossian, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. For I bear him record that he has a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. So you can see that Epaphras is not just uh, really the minister to Colossae, uh, but he's also, I believe, a minister to Laodicea, the church that is there, and also in Hierapolis. Now, <clears throat> when Epaphras came to Paul, he came with a very heavy heart because there were false teachers coming into the church of Colossae. Uh, they had begun to spread false doctrines, and he didn't want to see these believers corrupt that's why he made this long voyage all the way to Rome to find the Apostle Paul and ask him for help. Now, 
Paul, when he heard the words of Epaphras about the church there, you'll remember in chapter 1, he was encouraged by what he heard about this church. He was encouraged, but he was also distressed because of the false teachers coming in. So Epaphras brought him this great news that said, hey, Paul, the work that you did over there in Ephesus a few years ago when you were laboring in the school of Tyrannus for a couple years, remember, I came there and and, uh, I received the Lord. Well, I went back to my hometown, and now there's a church there in in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, and there's people, this is a, a fruit of your ministry, but Paul, we have a problem because there's people coming in that are teaching things that are not in line with what I've heard of you. They're not in line with, uh, with the things that I've been taught. And so he comes with this heavy heart, and Paul is encouraged but also discouraged that there are people that are going to try to tear this church down. I want you to remember that this is a good church. This is a wonderful church. Paul commended them in the first chapter. Remember, he said they had faith and they had hope and they had love. Said they had faith in Jesus Christ. That was the object of their faith. They had hope that someday they would be with other believers in glory, that they were going to be in heaven and be with these other believers. And uh, they had love for one another, that brotherly love. He said that they also were fruitful, that they had fruit, evidences of their Christian walk and uh, that they were walking with the Lord or growing in the things of the Lord. So this is a good church, but they're in very serious danger. This church is a wonderful church founded in the right things, doing the right things. They've heard the right gospel. They believed it, and this is a good church, but there's some people coming in that are going to try to cause them some problems. Now, I know saying that is kind of a little bit of a review, But I want you to be aware that this chapter 2 is really where Paul gets in uh, to the the, the uh, bare bones about the issues that are happening there. The things that Epaphras talked to him about, chapter two is where he really kind of hashes these things out and uh, addresses them. So uh, just a few things by way of that. Uh, what is known as the Colossian heresy is what they call it. It's a mixture of isms and philosophies. The Colossian heresy is a mixture of isms and philosophies. Uh, Some of those would be Gnosticism. You remember we talked about Gnosticism, where that is that these people denied the deity of Christ. They uh, claimed that they had superior wisdom and knowledge. And of course, Paul very clearly refuted that in the first chapter when he showed that Christ is supreme over everything. So he already has begun to attack some of these things. Another thing that you're going to see in this chapter 2 is humanism. Humanism says that man is the center of his universe and he's the solution to all of his problems. And you're going to see that in this second chapter. Uh, Humanism says, uh, man says, I am and I can do it. I don't need God's help. I can do it on my own. Not only that, but you're going to see legalism. Legalism is happening in this chapter. These would be people that you call Judaizers who come from the Jewish faith and they want to bring other things along with it. They want to add to salvation. Uh, They want to add circumcision and feasts and keeping the law. Really, they're mathematicians. They they say uh, Jesus plus or minus this equals salvation. That's what these legalists are doing. Jesus plus or minus this equals salvation. We see that today, don't we? Uh, Not only that, but there's mysticism. These are the spooky people. Everything is just, uh, there's all these mystical things that's happening. They're worshiping angels. Um, They're adding these other spiritual experiences. This is mysticism. You're going to see that in this chapter. Not only that, but there is something called asceticism. And that is self-deprivation in order that you might be more holy and more moral. You are at a higher standard because you have deprived yourself of pleasures and joys. Therefore, you are just a a greater standard. It even went as far as uh, some of these people would whip themselves in their back and even to the point of bleeding so that they could get their flesh into submission so that they were holier and somehow greater because of this. That's asceticism. Vance Abner used to say, you know, 
climbing into a hole never made anybody any holier, and I think that's true. Depriving yourselves of things never makes you any better. Uh, It's simply Jesus is where you're going to find the source of all that you need. So the Colossians, they were on the right track. They were established right. They were doing well. And now Paul comes into this second chapter. He's already began to give them a good foundation. He showed them a picture of Jesus, who he is. He showed them a picture of his work. And now he's going to get into some of these other things that are a problem within the church of Colossae. And so that's why I give you this back, uh, this a little bit of a review of information, because this is where he really starts getting into these things, is in chapter two. So they're, they're on the right track. They're still a good church, but they're in danger. Can you gather that from what we're seeing here? This church is in danger. So the first thing I want to say tonight is uh, Paul had a great concern and love for believers. Notice Paul's great concern and love for believers. Look at, uh, you can back up to chapter 1, verse 28, 29, and chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, so look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, through chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, for I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. He says, not only for you Colossians, not only for you Laodicea, but he said, as many as have not seen my flesh. Paul had a great concern and love for believers. That's all believers. The people of God were on Paul's mind all the time. He was always thinking about the churches, and so he prays for them, and he labors for them, and he toils for them because his greatest care, I believe, was for the people of God. As the apostle to the Gentiles, he has the care of these churches. I want you to notice also that those two words, labor and striving, that's like a sporting term. That's like going for the gold in in the Olympics. He's giving it his all for these people. And he continues that on in the first verse uh, of chapter two. He says, I have a great conflict. Now, the word there, conflict, literally means agony. Paul was saying, I agonize for you believers. When he heard of them, he rejoiced. When he heard of their danger, he was grieved. See, he was tethered to the churches. He was, there was an attachment. And it was even to the ones that he had never seen or been to. Paul had never been to the church at Colossae. But he loved them. He was tethered to them. He cared for them. That was the great love that he had. I want you to know this, that Paul was no stranger, of course, to persecution, to trouble, and to trials, uh, to difficulties, but that one thing that really weighed on his mind, I believe, was the churches. Now, over in 2 Corinthians, you don't have to go there, but I just want to read something to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28, Paul is not doing this so that people would be impressed by him. He's not saying, he's trying to get a point across to these Corinthians when he says this. But as he says it, he is uh, giving us some insight into some things that he himself has faced. Remember, we're talking about his great concern and love for the believers. So listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Verse 28, besides those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily the care of all the churches. Why do you think he said that? He says all these things that he's dealt with, but he said, and listen, aside from all those things, 
what comes on me daily is the care of all the churches. Why? Because Paul loved the people of God. That was what was on his mind. The churches were always on the mind of Apostle Paul. He loved them, and he prayed for them, and he labored for them, and he wrote to them, and he did all that he could to preach and to warn and to teach them, and his earnest desire was for God's people to stand strong and continue in the faith. Now, in that same chapter of 2 Corinthians, I want you to hear something else that he says in verse 3 and 4. He says, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through the uh, subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you've received another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you've not accepted, you might well bear with him. He's saying the thing that bothers me, and he's trying to get that church in Corinth back on track. They've gone off the rails in different ways, and he's getting them back on track. But he's saying back then when he's writing to the Corinthians, he's saying the thing that bothers me is that somebody else might come in with some other gospel and some other Jesus and you might just go along with it and abandon the simplicity of the gospel. He's saying that bothers me. I believe that that's what bothered Paul the most was that honest believers would be corrupted by evil men. That honest believers in Christ would be corrupted by evil men. So he labored and he preached and he warned and he taught and he prayed every single day for believers. Listen to something else that he said over in Acts chapter 20. Again, this is a few years before the letter that we have before us tonight. In Acts chapter 20, verse 29 through 31, he says this. See, he's on his way to Jerusalem at this time, and he stops at Miletus, and he calls for the elders of the church in Ephesus to come, and he's going to tell them, you're not going to see my face anymore, and I'm going to give you some warnings here. And so he says this. I know this that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own self shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul cared for the churches. It bothered him that false teachers would come in wherever the church may be, wherever the believers may be found. It bothered him that someone would come in and corrupt them from the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he had preached to them. It really bothered him, whether it be the Corinthians, the Colossians, whether it be the elders of the church of Ephesus. He said, there's wolves out there that want to devour you, and they want to corrupt you, and they want to pull you away. And this really shows the heart of Apostle Paul, doesn't it? He says, I've been beaten, I've been whipped, I've been in the sea, I've done all these, all these perils. And he said, but that which comes on me daily is the care of the churches, because I love the people of God, and I want them to do well, and I want them to prosper and I want them to finish well. And it is with this same heart that we see that Apostle Paul is writing to the Colossians because he is genuinely concerned for them. Do you see that? Can you see that? Now, let's look at Paul's desire for the church. Five things that I want to point out about Paul's desire for the church. He's going to warn them, and at the same time, he's going to give them some safeguards of how they can uh, protect themselves against these false teachers. Look at verses 2 and 3 of this chapter 2. That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you say, Paul, how about you say a little bit more in a smaller space, if you don't mind. There's a lot there. 
He says a lot just in a little space. And so uh, in order that we may get a grasp of this, let's look and see what he's really talking about. Number one of these five things is that he wants their hearts to be comforted. Now, if you can imagine when these false teachers are coming in and they start saying these things that they've not heard before, it would be probably a little bit alarming to them. When all of a sudden someone comes in and says, oh, well, you haven't uh, done this or you haven't done that. Well, you probably aren't really saved. Maybe we need to work on that. How alarming would that be to these Colossians who just simply believed the gospel and they were fruitful and they were enjoying themselves and they were just living life, loving Jesus and loving each other. And now here comes in these false teachers. I imagine that that would be very alarming to them. And so Paul says, uh, my desire is that first of all, that you be comforted. See, the enemy always wants to cast doubts on you. He always wants to steal away your peace. If he can corrupt your mind, if he can twist things and make you worry and make you doubt, then he can make you despair and he can render you powerless to some degree until you realize that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And Paul was saying, I want you to realize that you need to be comforted first of all. That's my desire for you. Number two, he says that you be united in love. Number two is that you be united in love. He says that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love. Now, this word knit means united. These believers need to be united in the love of Christ. Love is the bond that is going to hold them together. It is what's going to keep this church together. The unity of Christian love is where there is strength and where you're going to find that comfort that he talked about in verse one, in Christ and in the love of your brothers and sisters with in the church. Psalm 133 says this, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's saying when, when brothers and sisters in Christ come together and they're knit together in love and, they're, and they are joined together in unity, oh how sweet it is to be in a place like that. And where there is unity, God commands the blessing where brothers and sisters in Christ are loving each other in Christ there is unity and God can begin to bless that place and add strength and add comfort to them he's saying I want you to be comforted and I want you to be united in love Colossians chapter 3 verse verse 14 says above all these things put on charity or love which is the bond of perfectness he's saying love is going to be the glue that's going to keep you guys together as I was studying this, I read about uh, the redwood trees in California, you know, the giant redwood trees. And uh, they, they're considered to be the largest thing on earth, the, the tallest trees in the world. Uh, some of them are over 300 feet tall and over 2,500 years old. I've never been there. Some of you probably have been there. You've seen them, yeah. And uh, what's interesting about that is you would think that something so massive would have tremendous roots that go way down hundreds of feet into the ground. But what's interesting is actually they have shallow roots, but they're all intertwined with each other. And they lock to each other. So you have these massive trees and all their roots, they spread out and they're joined with each other. They're locked to each other so that when the storms come and the winds blow, they stand, but they don't stand alone. When the winds come and blow, they stand, but they don't stand alone. All the trees are supporting each other. So when the wind blows, when the storms come, when the troubles come, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what it means to be united in love as a solid front united in the love of Christ Jesus. You're intertwined. You're interwoven. When the winds blow, you're going to stand, but you ain't standing alone because beside you on this side is another brother. Beside you on this side is a sister in Christ interwoven together in the love of Jesus Christ, and you're going to stand. Amen. That's what it means. That's what he's talking about. Number three, that they have the full assurance of understanding. Let's look at verse two again. Now that we have a little bit, we're getting a picture of this verse, right? Verse two, that their hearts might be comforted, being united together in love. 
unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. That's kind of complicated sounding, isn't it? Let's take the word understanding. Understanding is revelation. Understanding is when the light comes on. Understanding is when the light comes on. You remember back in uh, chapter one of Colossians, Paul prayed for the church, and he prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of the will of God in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And what he meant was revelation. Remember I gave the uh, example of when the light comes on and suddenly everything's clear. You know, uh, when you're in the dark room and you wake up in the middle of the night and everything's dark and you can't see, you're staggering around, you're bumping into this, you're kicking your nightstand, you stepped on your dog and then when the light comes on, all that stops except for the pain in your toe, right? And... Uh, all that stops. The light comes on. It's revealed. It's revelation. Now you can see all things clearly. You can see everything clearly. So understanding is revelation. Let me give you some scripture that will help clear that up for you. In Ephesians, which was written basically the same time as Colossians, in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Paul prays basically kind of the same prayer he prayed for the Colossians. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Remember, that sounds pretty much like what he said in the other one. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Understanding is revelation. It's when the light comes on. It's when everything becomes clear. And so Paul is saying, I want the light to come on for you Colossians. I want it to be perfectly clear to you about the person of Christ, about the work of Christ, how he made peace through the blood of his cross, how he reconciled us through his death, and how someday you're going to be glorified with him in his resurrection. He says, I want you Colossians to get this down big, plain, and straight in your mind so that you know and that the light comes on, surely, so that you will have the full assurance. That's what he's saying. When the light comes on, you're going to have the full assurance of understanding because now you have something to hang on to. You have the person of Christ. You have the work of Christ. You've seen what he's done, and you realize it's sufficient for you, and when the light comes on and all that comes together and you say, yes, it all makes sense. Then you're going to have assurance in your heart and know that everything's going to be all right. Amen? Understanding is revelation. That's when the light comes on. Not only that, number four, we're talking about Paul's desire for the churches, that their hearts be comforted, united in love, that they have that full assurance of revelation, that assurance down in their heart. It's all okay. And now number four, that they will acknowledge the mystery of God. And that means the full discernment of the mystery of God, that they will fully discern what this is. Let's read the last part of verse two. To the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. The wording there sounds a little confusing because it says the mystery of God and of the Father and of, a, and of Christ. Now, uh, some people have said a, a better way to maybe to read this would be the mystery of God, even the Father and of Christ. There are others that say the original uh, manuscripts don't include the words between God and Christ. It says the mystery of God, Christ. In any event, I believe that the mystery that he's speaking of here is, in fact, Christ. Let me read to you what... Um, a note that was in the old Schofield Study Bible, and I think it's helpful, so I'm going to give it to you. It says, the mystery of God is Christ as incarnating the fullness of the Godhead and all the divine wisdom and knowledge for the redemption and reconciliation of man. The mystery of God is Christ as incarnating, incarnating the fullness of the Godhead. I think what he's saying, because remember, this epistle is talking about, it's revealing Christ. It's giving them a clearer picture of who Jesus is. It's making it clear to them, and he wants them to have the understanding of it. So just a moment ago, he said, I want you to have the full assurance of understanding 
understanding about who Jesus is. And now he says, I want you to come to the acknowledgement of this wonderful mystery, which is the mystery of God, who is Christ. I think what he's saying here is what he said in chapter 1, verse 19, when he said, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. See, there we have the Father and the Son. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Not only that, but here in just a little bit, he's going to write down another verse, which is Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So I believe the mystery here, the mystery of God is in fact Christ. I believe that's what he's saying. Um, David Guzik had a, a quote from a commentator by the name of Bruce, and it's one more thing along this uh, uh, topic, and I'm going to read it for you because I, I think it's also worth repeating. It says, others might lead them astray with, with uh, specious talk of mysteries, but there was one mystery above all others, the mystery of God's loving purpose disclosed in Christ alone. And Paul's concern was that they should come to know this all-surpassing mystery and know it as an indwelling presence. Amen? I believe that's what he's talking about. Finally, number five, Paul's desire for the churches. He desired that they recognize that all great treasures are found in Christ. Look at verse three. In whom, speaking of Jesus, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, the false teachers, they claim to have this secret wisdom and this secret knowledge. They, they, they had it all figured out, and you don't have it figured out, but I have it figured out, and it uh, sure is uh, sad to be you, and that's kind of the attitude that they had, and they encouraged seeking of wisdom and knowledge, but they didn't encourage seeking it in Jesus, and the problem with that, and Paul comes right out and says, you are never going to find wisdom and knowledge outside of Jesus. Jesus. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge is found in Jesus. All that we need is found in Jesus. He is the source of all wisdom and all knowledge. The book of James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. So wisdom comes from above. The godly wisdom comes from above, and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. It's all going to be found, and you're not going to find it somewhere else. It's going to be found in Jesus. You know, that even applies to your daily life. I can't think of the number of times that mom, when she was doing uh, demolition on the house, reconstructing and deconstructing <laughs> things, that I heard her say, well, I had to ask God for wisdom to help me figure out what to do. Wisdom answers how to go about. It's knowledge applied. Uh, wisdom answers how to go about it. Uh, understanding is the amen. It says, yeah, that's how you do it. That's how to go about it. And understanding says, yes, it will work. And I can't think of the number of times she said, I got to ask uh, God for wisdom on how to go about this. And she did. And the project would be completed. And dad would come home and the closet is now the bathroom and the bathroom is now the closet and dad's distressed and he needs prayer. But in your daily life, God will grant wisdom if we ask him. Uh, he's, not, he's not some distant God that won't have anything to do. He cares about your daily life. You know that? He cares about the little things even. Now Paul comes to his first warning, which is that of enticing words. Beware of enticing words. Verse number four. And this I say, saying all these things I've been talking about, I'm saying these things because lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Now, the word there, beguile, means to victimize. It means to make you a victim. It's a sad reality that there have been too many people who have been victimized by false teachers. You know, you give them your ear, and they might steal your soul, or at the very least, your wallet. That's what false teachers do. They will fill your mind with things that are not true, and they'll try to steal things away. And sometimes false teaching can sound good. When he says, man, you're the latest, greatest thing that ever walked this planet. Oh, look how good you are. God is so blessed to know you. 
God probably just, man, he is blessed to know you. That's the kind of talk that people do. You know, they, these false teachers, they want to build you up how great you are, how great you are. Man, you're just great. You're just uh, incredible. They, that, that's the itching ears, and it works kind of both ways, you know. These false teachers, that's the kind of stuff that they want to do. They want to entice you. They want to entice you with these beautiful words. And sometimes false teaching can sound good. Sometimes it'll have bits of truth interwoven with it. Sometimes it'll almost sound right, but it'll just be a little bit not right. And let me tell you, the little bit of poison that is in there will do you harm. Do not give your ear to false teachers because all the while it might sound all right, it might sound smooth, it might sound okay, but at the same time you're being poisoned by what they're having to say. So beware that you might become victimized and uh, Paul is saying, I don't want these Colossians to be deceived by these philosophies or these enticing words. I don't want them to become the victims of false teachers. He says, I want them to mature and grow and be strong so when the lies come in, they can spot them and say, uh-uh, no, get out of here. I don't want nothing to do with you. And when you know the truth, that's why he's saying, he says, I want you to be, uh, I want you to have the understanding. I want you to have the full revelation. I want you to acknowledge who Jesus is. Is. I want you to fully discern the mystery of God so that when the false teachers come in and they're spouting off their mumbo jumbo and they're trying to steal your wallet, that you can say, uh-uh, uh-uh, I know exactly in whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep me and that which I have committed unto him against that day. Get out of here. That's what he's saying. He's saying, shut your mouth and get down the road. That's what he wants him to be able to say. Amen. All right, I'm going to move a little bit quicker so we can get this wrapped up. Paul's fervent prayer and commendation. Let's look at that, verse 5. He says, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet, I, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Paul was praying so fervently for these people. He said, he said I am with you in the spirit. He's, he said, I am on your side. I am praying and I am there with you even though he's in jail. 1,300 miles away, he says, I'm praying, and I'm praying to the point that I am right there with you, and it fills me with joy to see how you're doing. And, and again, let me say, the church is not, this church is not given over to heresy. This is still a good church. This is still a good church, but this is a church that's in danger. That's why he's writing this letter. He doesn't want them to be ruined. They, they have started so well. And so he prays for them and he writes to them and he warns them to keep them from the error. This is a good church, these Colossians. And he commends them for that. Not only that, but look what he says in verse 5 at the end of that. He says, joying and beholding your order and steadfast of your and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Order and steadfast were both military terms. So he says, I'm seeing you like an army that's under attack. He said, I'm seeing you believers in Colossae as a, like an army that's under attack and yet your lines and your ranks are not broken and they're holding their ground in faith in Jesus Christ and they are still unshaken. He says, I see you guys, you are holding together. You're like those redwoods. You are holding together with one another right now. He says, I see that and it's filling me with joy. Keep doing that. He says, that fills me with joy to see that. Keep doing that. Now, that brings me to our primary verse of this message tonight with the heading of this. Keep the simplicity of your faith in Christ. Keep it simple. Don't make things complicated. I think that's what Paul is saying. Before he gets into all this other stuff, Let's read verse 6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk you in him. Don't make it complicated, Colossians. Don't make it complicated. See, the false teachers were trying to complicate things, weren't they? 
Isn't that what they were doing? They're trying to complicate. They're trying to make everything. They're trying to just warp their minds and complicate it. He says, he says, don't allow them to do that. See, they, they attacked Christ and they added other beings. They claimed this higher knowledge was necessary to reach heaven. They added philosophy. They claimed human wisdom was the answer. They added legalism, circumcision, feasts, laws, do this and don't do that. Mystical experiences, revelation, worshiping of angels, self-deprivation and the intentional infliction of pain even to be righteous. And before Paul gets into all that stuff, really, before he gets into that, he says, Colossians, listen closely. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in him. Don't make things complicated. Don't let people complicate your faith in Christ. Don't let them come in and add all this. That before he even gets and starts talking, he gives them this verse. And I believe he's saying to the Colossians, do not let these people mess with your mind and add these things to you. Don't let them trouble you. Don't let them alarm you with all these things. Don't let that happen. You know, when you were born again, it didn't come by some human ingenuity in which you did something and therefore God owed you some kind of a favor. It was not some work that you did. You simply heard and believed the gospel. Well, that was hard. You realized that you couldn't save yourself, that you needed help. You realized that you were not able to save yourself, and you threw yourself on the mercy of God. God, I'm at your mercy. I've sinned against you. I need your help. So in that, you repented of your sins. That is turning away and you turn to Christ. It's, the same, it's two sides of the same coin. Repenting and you're turning. It's to turn around and go the other direction. And you turn to Christ. And in simple faith, you trusted him and you were saved by his grace. It was simple Simple faith, trusting Jesus. When you were saved, it was a simple thing because God had already done it all. There was nothing for you to do. God did all the work. All you had to do was the receiving. All you had to do was the receiving. And Paul's saying, okay, it was in simple faith. You come to Christ. You believed the gospel. You gave your life to Jesus. You repented of your sins. You trusted in Jesus. That is, you threw yourself on the mercy of God and said, I can't save myself. So, oh, God, save me. And he did. And by his grace, you were saved. And now Paul's saying, take that and don't make it complicated. Why, why are you going to allow these people to trouble you and to make all these things? Don't, don't allow them to complicate it. Don't stress yourself out. Don't stress yourself out with all these things. In the simplicity that you came to Christ, that's what you need to walk in. When you were saved, you were completely saved in that moment that you trusted Christ. It wasn't a starting place from which you worked your way up to eventually someday you're going to be saved. No, you were saved by God's grace in that moment. The moment that you placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you passed from death into life everlasting. You became a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old things were passed away. All things have become new. It's not some starting place where you work your way up to it. No, by God's grace, you were saved completely in that moment. Some ladder did not descend from heaven, and you begin to grab rung by rung the day that you asked the Lord to save you. And you, rung by rung, now are climbing your way to heaven. There is no ladder to heaven. There's no ladder to salvation. God brought salvation down to us. That's what he's saying. Listen, guys, don't make it complicated. Isn't that what he's saying? 
Don't make it complicated. Why, why would you allow that to happen? Why would you let people complicate things when it's not necessary? So then he goes into this. Build on the foundation of the gospel that you have received. Look at verse uh, 7. It says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Let me say this also. All of God's requirements, all of his desires have all been met in Jesus Christ and there's nothing else to add to it and you do not have to serve man's desires. You don't serve man, you serve God, amen? He says, in the foundation of the gospel that you received, the simplicity, just coming to Christ in simple faith, I want you to walk in that, and not only that, but I want you to build on that very foundation. They're going to try to push you around in other directions, but what I've given you is exactly what I want you to build upon. And so he says, be rooted in Jesus. Just as the trees send out their roots and they bring in the water and uh, the nutrients in the soil, so he says the Christian must be rooted in the person of Christ because he's the source of life. Jesus said, I am the, the vine and you are the branches. Jesus is the one from whom we draw our nutrients and the source of life. So he gives us this analogy of a tree. Your roots, build, sink down your roots into the gospel. We could say it like this, our roots should be wide and interwoven like the redwoods in love and unity, but it should be as deep as the oak in doctrines and in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus Christ. That's how it should be. He gives us the analogy as a tree. Now he gives us one as a building. He says, build upon Jesus. It says, rooted and built up in him. Verse 7. Okay, so in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, he says this. For other foundation can no man lay than that that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no firmer foundation that you can build upon. There's nothing else that we can build upon that's going to be more stable than the rock of Christ Jesus. That's where we're going to build upon. That's where our house, our living, that we live here below, we're going to build our hopes on things eternal in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he said, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. How about that for a foundation to build on? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean to Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Amen. Be established in the faith. Look at verse 7 again. Rooted, built up in him. Rooted like a tree. Built up like a house. Established in the faith as you have been taught. There he goes again. The way that you learned it. The way that you learned it right. The way that Epaphras learned it from me and the way that you learned it from Epaphras. That's what I want you to build upon. The true gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the Christian is to be rooted wide and deep like the tree, and we're to build on the foundation of Christ established in the gospel, and not only that, but we're to continue to abound and grow in the things of God with thanksgiving. It says in the last part of verse 7 that, they, that we are to abound with thanksgiving. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. He's saying the same thing. Grow in the things of Christ. Grow in thankfulness. Grow in grace so that you may be strong, so that you may be established, so that you may be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, so you may be like the house that is built upon the rock and the winds come and the floods come and you don't lose your house because it's built on Jesus and it's built with good things. Amen. That's what he's talking about. The Christian life should be marked with a life that is continually growing in the things of the Lord and in pursuit of God. Amen. 
Now, not only that, he comes to a warning against philosophy and empty deceit. Look at verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The word philosophy means love of wisdom. Love of wisdom, that's what the word means. It means love of wisdom. And wisdom is good as long as it is godly wisdom from above. Remember James talked about that wisdom we can ask God for. Because worldly wisdom many times can be empty and deceptive. And so that's what he's talking. He's he's warning the Colossians. He says, look, following the philosophies and the empty deceptions are going to rob you of the truth and the blessings of God. And if there's somebody that isn't saved and they're giving in to those things, it's going to rob them of ever coming to the knowledge of saving grace because they're going to be following after the wrong things. He said, if this continues to go where you are, it's going to rob you and it's going to rob people from coming to Christ and it's going to destroy people by this philosophy and this worldly wisdom. He's saying it may sound good in some ways. Remember, it may sound good. It may sound spiritual. It may sound wonderful. It may have these great swelling words. Oh, it sounds so good. But in there, poison there. Not only that, but maybe it's just empty. It's just empty. J. Vernon McGee told a story about a theologian who's speaking outside, and there's, he uses these giant lofty words, this theologian does. And and all this really high-sounding terminology, and there's a crowd of people gathered around. And, and uh, they've been there about 30 minutes, and he's just been waxing eloquent. And a man walks up and, uh, and asks one of the people in the crowd, he says, what's he talking about? And the man who's been there for 30 minutes replied, he hasn't said yet. <laughs> Empty, right? Swelling words, he hasn't said yet. So these philosophies, as you know, they included Gnosticism. We're not gonna, we've been there quite a bit already. We might talk a little bit more about it later on uh, next week. But it also includes humanism. Remember I said that's the man-centered approach. Man is the solution to all a man's problems. You're gonna find that in verse eight. Look at the last part of verse eight. It says, after the traditions of men, after the rudiment or the crude basic things of the world and not after Christ. This is traditions of men. This is the way of the world. And it has nothing to do with Christ. This is humanism. It's man-centered. He has no need for God. He says, I am and I can. I can do whatever I need to do. I'm going to follow the traditions of man. I'm going to hold the worldly wisdom. I got it all figured out. I don't have no value or no need for Christ. Don't worry about it. I've, I've got it all taken care of. See, the humanist thinks that man is the solution to all of his problems. Vance Habner used to say, everyone has the answer, but no one knows what the question is. That's worldly wisdom. They've all got the answer, but nobody knows what the question is. And the humanist says, well, man is the solution, but I'm here to tell you that man is not the solution. He's the problem. Jesus Christ is the only solution. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Which brings me to the point that Real truth is never going to be found in worldly wisdom, these philosophies, or anything of that nature. It's only going to be found in Jesus Christ. That's where real wisdom and knowledge comes from, is Jesus Christ. And all that we, have, all that we need is found in Jesus. Look at verse 9. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That is the full fullness. I believe the, the word there is pleroma. It is the full fullness. You can't get any more full, all of it. Now, I will say this because this is a direct attack on the Gnostics. When he says the fullness of the Godhead bodily, they didn't believe that God would ever take on a body. They believed matter was evil. God would have nothing to do with it. Emanations came out one after another, lesser and lesser. Finally, one got so far away, didn't know God created the world, 
You have all these mediators between them, and they said, they said that, that, that uh, matter was evil, and so God would have nothing to do with it, and all of his power was split up between these emanations. And Paul says, no, Christ is supreme. There are none of these other emanations. And not only that, but God became a man in Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man, and in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It was a direct attack at the Gnostics and said, no, you guys are way off base here. They didn't even believe that Jesus left footprints when he walked. They said he was just some kind of, a, some kind of a, an image or something. Really nutty stuff. And Paul says, you guys have got it all wrong. This is God in the flesh. He came in a body, virgin born. This is the word became flesh. And that's what he's saying. And not only that, but we are complete in Jesus. Look at verse 10. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. That means basically that he is supreme over everything. He is God. And in him, we are complete in Jesus. Jesus is all we need. We are perfect. Perfectly complete in him. I think, again, you can say, don't make things complicated. As you have received Christ, walk in him. In the simple faith that you receive Christ. Don't get involved in all these things where people are putting their rules on you and they're putting all this stuff on you. Maybe you're beating your own self down with a whip saying, oh, I'm holier, I'm holier, I'm getting better by the minute. All the while, you're depriving yourself of things for no reason, which was nothing to do. God never said you had to do that. Why are you doing it? Some people spend all their time beating their own self up. The devil doesn't even have to do it. They do it for themselves. And I think as we, as you've heard this message tonight, and when we come back to this chapter next week, I would encourage you as a believer to take stock of your own life and say, am I in one of these categories? Am I, do I see myself in any of these things? Am I adding things? Am I making rules? Am I living in a way that's not after the simplicity of Christ? When you were first born again, everything was wonderful, peaceful, it wasn't complicated. You just loved Jesus and you loved that Jesus loved you and you just wanted to tell someone else about Jesus and that's really all that mattered. Every song was sweet, the sun was brighter, the grass was greener, the sky was bluer. It was just simple, isn't it? He told the Galatians, that which you've begun in the spirit, are you going to make it perfect in the flesh? No. Paul says, you need to stick to the simplicity of the gospel. You are complete in Jesus. What else do you need? He said, that's it. Before he gets into all this stuff, you're complete. Why are you beating yourself up? Why are you so hard on yourself? As you've received Christ, walk in him. Don't allow the philosophy and rules to mess with you. I thought, one more thing. Chris, you can go ahead and, and come up and get ready to bring a song. One more thing I thought about, you, you know, how might I say this? We are complete in him. And I thought about a big picture puzzle, you know, the 5,000 pieces or whatever. For me, a big picture puzzle is like 20 pieces, but that's aside the point. Don't judge me. But I thought about like a, the big puzzles. My, my uh, grandma, Granny, we call her. She used to do these all the time. And something that's unique about a puzzle is if you're missing one piece, then it is eternally worthless. It will be forever incomplete because you cannot substitute anything for a puzzle. There is literally one piece, and you have to get that right one, one in a row. You have to get every piece right. One in a row. There's just one. It's unique. It's specific to that puzzle. In the same respect, when a puzzle is complete and the full picture is seen, you can literally add nothing to it. It's totally complete. So I thought about that. When Christ comes into us, he is that unique individual and the only one that can make us complete. 
Without Christ, you are eternally incomplete. And there are no other ways around it. You can't manufacture a new piece and make it look right. It's not going to work. You can't do that. There's only one that's going to work, and that's Jesus. And the moment that Jesus comes to live inside of here, you become perfectly complete in salvation. Nothing else can be added at all. The picture is full. Isn't that beautiful? Christ comes to live in us, us in Christ, in his body. Salvation perfectly complete by him, received in simple faith, and now just walk in it. Don't make things complicated. I don't know about you, but that ministered to me. Chris, go ahead and and bring a song tonight. That ministered to me as I studied this. So I encourage you to take the things you've heard tonight. Am I making life complicated and I don't have to? Enjoyable things are not sinful. Some enjoyable things are sinful, but not all of them. Perhaps there's things that's okay that you've been depriving yourself of, and I don't mean sinful things. I mean just basic things because you want to be holier. Are you whipping yourself? Other things you're doing, that's the altar call tonight, is if you don't know Jesus, you are that incomplete forever person unless you come and have that one piece that will complete you. That's Jesus Christ. You can have that tonight. Simple faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all you need. Just repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. And God will do that the moment that you do that, you got God's promise that you'll be a new person in Christ Jesus. And then the other side of that is to the Christian, take inventory tonight, next week also, as we see these things unfold. We didn't get into all of them, but I gave you a bit of an overview. When we see these things, take an inventory. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you areas in your life that you're doing these things, and you'll find a fresh peace come when you release those to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Stand with me tonight. We're going to have a song, and then we'll be dismissed.